Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, this is the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Now, how hard is your job? Is it harder than being Prime Minister? That's a question we're asking today. We've got some new exclusive polling from YouGov asking which jobs are harder or easier than running the country. Surgeon, apparently, is harder. Being a professional footballer, apparently, is easier. That's at least according to the general public. So, we'll ask a top heart surgeon and former footballer, Gary Lineker. Much else uh, besides coming up on the pod in just a moment. But first, as ever, we kick off with The Columnists. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, it's that time where we always speak to two of our favourite columnists. And today, we are joined by Times columnist Matthew Syed. Hi, Matthew. Hey, Matt. Good to have you with us. And the Spectator's political editor, Katie Balls, is here. Hi, Katie. Morning, Matt. So we are talking about who's got hard jobs. Uh, We've got this poll, uh, which shows that most people think that being a surgeon, the most people think being a surgeon, was it 60-odd percent of people think being a surgeon is harder than being prime minister? Uh, uh, 80% of people think that being a professional footballer is easier than being prime minister. Uh, what's uh, what's the hardest job you've ever done, Matthew? And how does it compare to being prime minister? I've not really had many jobs. I, I, so I was a ping pong professional ping pong player for about ten years. Well, that's it. That's close. That's close to footballer. So how does that compare? Do you think to being being prime minister? Well, it depends. What, I, I would. Like, I mean, I don't want to be pedantic here, Matt. But when, when you say hard, I mean, I loved doing it. I, you'd had to train, and you got beaten a lot by Chinese opponents. They were very good. That that wasn't that easy. But I, I, I loved playing the game, and it was a complete joy when I look back on the career. I mean, most of the stuff that we do is easy if we enjoy it. Um, even if certain aspects of it can be quite challenging. The toughest one I did psychologically was. Towards the end of my table tennis career, when I realised that I was slowing down and getting beaten by people I thought I should be beating, I started an event company and I ran a couple of televised sporting events, uh, table tennis, badminton on the BBC. And I would spend the days cold calling uh, companies uh, to try and get them to sponsor the tournaments, marketing directors. And I got probably a 99% rejection rate. Yeah, that was quite pretty tough. I met, yeah, long, 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 long time ago, I tried getting advertising for a sort of fanzine thing. Exactly the same thing, Cole. That's tough. You've got, you, you earn your money doing that. Um, what about you, Katie? Yeah, I'm trying to think. So I think that the people surveyed are correct in the sense that journalist, I think, is one of the ones that are like, yeah, anyone can do that. <laughs> well, no, they said it's easier. It's one of the, it's got one of the highest reports yeah. who said it was easier than being prime minister, yeah. which, um, I, you know, is probably fair. Yeah, I think, I think basically when you look at that list, it's like jobs that I think might mean you're the best at, but could you blag it if you're on faking it and thrown in? Um, I was a check at Gala Summerfield for about a year and a half. Um, that was quite a hard job. Um, just having to be polite all the time and nice to people. <laughs> and I know um, you well, Katie. I can imagine you found that very difficult. <laughs> I, yeah, I got promoted at one point, maybe because they just wanted to take me off the checkouts to the kiosk, 
Oh. And that meant I got to do, uh, be in charge of the lottery machine, um, which was good, but also quite hard because it would break quite a bit. Um, but I don't, maybe the hardest job I ever had was flyering, actually, at the Edinburgh Fringe. <sighs> yeah. Um, because everyone just hates you, basically. And you also have to be nice and polite as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> another problem. There's a recurring, there's a recurring theme here. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think my, my hardest was probably digging goat muck. I had a Saturday job working on a sort of small holding. And it was, it was supposed to be quite varied, and it just ended up being week after week, was just turn up and just keep digging this rock-hard, you know, waist-high pile of muck and just put it just put it over there. Yeah, that was quite good. Um, That's good. Do you think uh, that people's opinions might have changed because our political leaders have made it look like hard work being Prime Minister lately, Katie? Yeah, I think there's a bit of that. Um, I, I also think there's maybe, you know, a love actually element here. Um, you know, when we watch it, all the almost the, the drama of people being prime minister, I, I think that it comes to just, you know, making lots of different decisions. And therefore, I think it's a combination of the fact that um, I think we could all sit in a room and come up with some ideas. We all have ideas on how things could be run better in the country. Whereas if you give me um, some tools and say I have to do brain surgery, I'd have to try and find an emergency exit. Um, but it probably doesn't have the fact that the country doesn't seem to be particularly uh, well run in recent years. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely, and maybe I think I, that's the overlap between the football thing and the politics thing. Is it the sort of the armchair? Nobody's really an armchair surgeon thinking. Yeah, you know, whatever I was doing it, I'd definitely have a go at that halfway. <laughs> I'd uh, turn right. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas particularly like football managers or, you know, poli- uh, prime ministers, always like, I'll tell you what you want to be doing. You want to be, uh, uh, there's definitely something in there. Well, but let's, I tell you what, let's move, let's move on because there's quite a lot I want to talk to you about. How do we police the internet is definitely a, a, a live issue right now. There's the online harms bill. Uh, things due back uh, in the commons. Um, the government seems to be again wavering on what they're going to do, the extent to which... Uh, social media sites need to be responsible for what's on them. And then I thought there's actually a slight read across it to this into the, the stuff that uh, my good friend Andrew Bridgen's been posting online. That, how could we be talking about policing what's posted online when even an elected MP is tweeting stuff which is demonstrably misinformation, dangerous dangerous falsehoods? What, what, what's your view on this, Matthew? Is it possible to regulate the internet? Uh, well, I think... Uh... It was pretty outrageous uh, the way that Andrew Bridgen has been treated for questioning the efficacy of uh, of the vaccine. I think he's wrong, uh, and I think he can be shown to be wrong with good data. But that's the best way to refute uh, an opinion with which you disagree is to prevent present evidence. I don't think it's right that he's been uh, stripped of the. I mean, obviously, it's up to the Conservative Party who they. Uh, endow with the whip. But what the effect will be is a chilling effect on future MPs who might want to question the status quo and might fear that they will lose their job as a consequence. It's entirely legitimate to ask questions of this kind. I mean, when the uh, COVID vaccine was first described to be safe, I had some concerns. You know, how can we be sure? What are the long-term side effects? Randomized control trial methodology is the gold standard of scientific inference. But it seemed to me that how could we could be completely sure about the long-term effects, given that it had been invented so recently? And I looked very closely. Um, and that's what we want MPs to do. So I, I think this is quite extraordinary. And, you know, I think it's... what The problem we have is the many of the things that we think are true today will prove by future inquiry to be false. By suppressing those who question uh, current shibboleths, we are effectively placing a chilling 
uh, censorship on the expression of free opinions. But is it? It's one thing asking a question; it's another then coming to your own incorrect answer, isn't it? And the, the, the problem with Andrew Bridgen is that he said that there is a direct correlation between uh, vaccine uptake and excess deaths. He said that. Uh, it was uh, it's a bioweapon. He said that the the secret services knew about it before and have used it to control people. He said that it wasn't safe for pregnant women to have the vaccine. It's, it's I, I completely agree with you. We want politicians, you know, and often it does come from extensions on the back benches to ask questions. But when you when you do the work that you've just been talking about doing, look at the the data. Is it, it there has to be some uh, consequence, doesn't it? If you start saying things which aren't true and then therefore potentially dangerous. Well. Depends on how smart you think the public is. Um, I, I hope that if the public hears Andrew Bridgen questioning the efficacy of vaccines, what I heard from him is an increased prevalence of heart inflammation. And you have to look very closely at the data to see the uh, re relative amounts of problems from those who have had the vaccine, those who haven't, and those who haven't had the vaccine who have subsequently contracted COVID. And these statistical analyses are extremely important. Um, but we know that uh, health regulators have made mistakes before. We know that pharmaceutical companies have rigged randomized controlled trials. Uh, I think it's okay for him to express opinion. The best way to refute the opinion is to show the evidence that is against him. And if I had uh, a group of scientists saying one thing and Andrew Bridgen, uh, who's got a questionable track record in, in other respects, on the other hand, then I would go along. But what, what happens when you suppress opinions or you strip people of their jobs? What the public begins to wonder is whether there are opinions that could be expressed which are not being expressed. It, it actually undermines the probity that the public sees in what should be authoritative opinions and authoritative science. So, you, you know, you yeah, say yeah. he's he's wrong, but I'd like to hear the evidence. I mean, if you say he's wrong, I'd like to hear you explain why he's wrong. Um, that's the best way to do it. Yeah, Demonising yeah. people, I think, is tremendously damaging to liberal democracy. There's an interesting point here, Katie Balls, that particularly, I mean, I think the media, uh, the way the media have given Andrew Bridgen a platform on a whole range of issues uh, has, a, has built him up into someone that now lots of people do listen to. The fact that the Conservative government has essentially run shy of doing precisely the thing that Matthew's talking about, when he's had two debates in the House of Commons where he said all these things, They've sent the most junior health minister to respond when the Times reported that over Christmas about what he'd been saying uh, about the Secret Services being involved in being a bioweapon and so on. The Times went to the Conservatives, the Whips and Number 10, and Conservative HQ, and they didn't say anything. And so there is that they seem to have sort of just left, let him carry on doing this. There hasn't been that sort of very public, you know, and it's fallen to sort of websites like Full Facts and so on to, to challenge it. Do you think the government should have done more sooner rather than just waiting, essentially, for him to use the word holocaust and then decide, well, that's the thing we're going to strip the whip for. Yeah, I mean, I think, as, as Matthew says, there's a really fine line on this thing. So the reason Andrew Bridgen has ultimately lost the whip was related to the Holocaust comparison. Um, and that was, as you say, the point where they decided, um, and that's a party decision, that this person no longer represents the Conservative brand. Um, when it comes to what was actually much more, I think, Matthew's point, which is about, um, you know, having views which are sceptical of the vaccines, putting your case forward, it feels as though the Conservative Party wasn't particularly restraining what he was saying there, but also wasn't offering, um, you know, the rebuttal, the clear counter to say, this is why we think this person is wrong. Um, and and therefore, the, yes, there could have been more of that. Um, I think that when it comes to, and we're talking about this also in relation, as you say, to the online safety bill, 
there is something to make sure that you don't look as though you're just shutting down every conversation because the the internet is really hard to regulate um you can try and regulate but you're only going to really regulate parts of it there's always going to be loopholes and that means these conversations are going to pop up somewhere um and the more i think you push them out the probably the more that conversation is going to pop up somewhere is is probably potentially more dangerous in terms of the fact you're not going to get a rebuttal and there are another view um so i think if there there can be more to actually take the arguments on if you think they're wrong that is a better thing for the government to be doing and actually, if there was that information out, then the government was putting the information out there. Uh, those, when, you know, because I've seen, having covered this a bit this week, various people now in my mentions having arguments with, I don't know whether it's Andrew Bridgen or like said Fred, it all seems to blur into one. Um, there would be that information there for people to respond with um, as well. I mean, what, one thing that strikes me is, is it's very easy to veer into tremendous arrogance when talking about fake news and free speech. The idea that, we know, as the people determining what is and what isn't acceptable, what the truth actually is. I mean, one of the great advantages of free speech is that fake news is rebutted much more quickly. I grew up believing that carrots really had a big effect on my <laughs> eyesight. Um, Aristotle apparently believed that men had one rib less than women. In fact, I think that stayed as a medical fact until not far away from the scientific revolution. Fake news is m- much of what we believe today is fake. I mean, we will supersede much many of our opinions today. What we think is safe and and robust will be superseded. That is the evolution of human knowledge, of scientific knowledge. And therefore, shutting down even those opinions with which we think are dangerous, it's a much greater danger that we will miss those insights and opinions that contradict the status quo, which might lead to progress. Got to be very, very careful. Really interesting uh, view that. Right, let's turn our attention then to Boris Johnson. Uh, well, he's, he's pocketed a million pounds, it turned out, this week, but that's not what we're going to talk about. How is he going to call a truce with Rishi Sunak? Uh, Henry Zeffman, associate political editor of the Times, has got the story. Henry, what's the plan? So this is a plan being discussed by um, some of Boris Johnson's closest allies. Um, those who recognise, they say, that it is extremely unlikely... Uh, that Boris Johnson will be sort of um, acclaimed back into number 10 before the next election. But they do say that come the local elections in in May this year, in which most people expect the Conservatives to get hammered, Boris Johnson will have leverage over Rishi Sunak. And the idea doing the rounds is that he might use that as a moment to strike a deal with Rishi Sunak, where he would say to him, look, uh, I'm not going to destabilise your government. I will support you up until the next election. But in exchange, I want you to assure me that you and the Conservative Party will find a way to get me into a safer seat than Uxbridge, which is where he is at the moment, which, as it stands, the Conservatives are going to lose to Labour. Interesting. Katie, it's not a ringing endorsement of Boris Johnson's election winning abilities if he thinks he's not going to hold his own seat. No, exactly. It slightly goes against. We keep hearing from some of his true believers, uh, which is the only way the Tory party are going to survive and get a massive majority is if Boris Johnson is front and centre again. Um, But I think it does also point to something. You think back to when Boris Johnson was 
entertaining the idea at least of running against Rishi Sunak but never actually went for it um, in November. There was lots of talk at the time that perhaps what he was really doing was trying to make it so Rishi Sunak offered him something on the Privileges Committee, a way out, um, and and they obviously furiously denied all of this. Um, but I think there's clearly um, the leverage you get from looking as though you are the prince across the water or, you know, sat behind you in the Commons chamber is something that I think those around Boris Johnson believe could be quite useful. Uh, what, what do you think, Matthew? You, you, I know you, you, you stood for the election once before, didn't you? So you know a little bit about uh, about what it's like on the doorstep. Oh, yeah, I, I stood for Labour in Wokingham, which is the seat of John Redwood. Oh, of course, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that was... I, in fact, I bumped into him on the street, uh, me and my wife did, not long ago, and we had a chat and he reminded me that I'd challenged him to a game of ping-pong and he said that he had wisely declined but that uh, even though I'd been better at table tennis, he was far better at politics because I, I only just kept my deposit. Um, but um, what's the chronology here, Matt? So so is Johnson saying, give me a safe seat and I will support? Can, can he be transferred to a safer seat sort of a few months before the election? I mean, if, that, if, if the chronology was that way, I, I wouldn't trust Boris Johnson not to get the safe seat and then stand against challenge Sunak anyway. It's a good point, Henry. Explain explain how all this unfolds. Well, the I mean, the most likely way in which it would happen uh, is that um, is that um, in the weeks before a general election, after Boris Johnson would have been saying for several years up to that point, oh, of course I'm going to stand in Uxbridge, um, a Conservative MP in some safe seat somewhere or other. Um, would suddenly announce their retirement, pop up in the House of Lords a few months later, and then Boris Johnson would be, you know, at that very late stage, shuffled across to that seat. I mean, by the way, just on the, I mean, one fascinating thing that I think underlies this conversation I had with a close ally of Boris Johnson is this idea that actually it's not prime minister or bust for him, that, that he is determined desperate, they think, to hang around politics. And perhaps that does mean, if the Conservatives do lose under Rishi Sunak at the next election, that Boris Johnson might try to become leader of the opposition. I think that's something that a lot of people have sort of instinctively ruled out. But, you know, if you think about it, it may well be his perfect job because, you know, it's much less work than being prime minister, but you do get to turn out Turn up, turn up in the House of Commons once a week and have a pop at Keir Starmer, something that he enjoyed greatly doing. So, you know, one thing that I take from this story is that people close to Johnson who don't think that he'll be able to get back into number 10 anytime soon do nevertheless entertain the prospect that he might want to lead the Conservatives in opposition. That was Katie Balls and Matthew Side. Of course, you can read Matthew in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, who's got the toughest job? 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. How hard is it really to be Prime Minister? How does it compare to the job that you do? If you are the Prime Minister, you get £164,080 a year. Five times the average salary for a full-time worker in the UK. So, being Prime Minister pays more than most jobs. But how difficult is it? We asked YouGov to carry out a poll for us to ask people which jobs are easier or harder than running the country. Beth Mann from YouGov has been crunching the numbers. Yeah, so we asked about a range of jobs, 24, and we found that only four had 50% or more saying they were harder. So in general, we can see that people do recognise the Prime Minister is a pretty hard job. And so the top one was a surgeon. Around six in ten thought that was harder. And then it went nurse, firefighter and soldier, which all had around 50% saying so. I think what immediately strikes you is that these are the life or death careers. Like The, the stakes are high when you're doing those jobs. Are very high. Yeah, I yeah. mean, Prime Minister stakes are high then as well, but these yeah. ones very much so too. Uh, and what about at the other end of the scale? Which ones are the easiest? Yes, so we've got footballer coming out the bottom, around 8 in 10 saying that easier. And then well, you've got the likes of me and you, him. <laughs> you've got the office worker and the journalist, where around 75% say that's easier. Unbelievable. Being a journalist is very difficult. Well, most pe- more people think that being a surgeon is harder than being a prime minister, more than any other job. So we're hearing six out of ten people think that being a surgeon is harder. So I spoke to one of the country's best surgeons, heart surgeon, called Vindalal. I'm a heart surgeon, uh, and I worked at Bart's for about twenty years as a as a consultant cardiac surgeon. Uh, and I would say that um, you you know as as the more senior you get, the easier it does uh, become. So uh, initially, when you start off, it, it is quite a difficult job. But, uh, you know, once you get the experience and uh, do a couple of thousand cases, then things become a bit easier. Is part, do you think that part of the, the reason people think it's hard, is it, is it hard to become a surgeon as much as they're doing the job afterwards? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, when you become a heart surgeon and a consultant, you, you often operate within your own envelope of comfort. So... You know, uh, and most of the cardiac operations, you know, we do within that comfort zone. Uh, I think when you know to train to be a cardiac surgeon, especially, you know, it takes uh, five years of medical school, then about ten to twelve years in training, in which you're sort of sent all over the world and uh, work in different units around the country. And then, you know, once you become a consultant, that's when you start really becoming comfortable at what you do. What does a, a hard day as a surgeon look like? What what sort what what's your day look like if you go home and uh, so he says, oh, how was your day? He says, oh, I've had a really hard day. What, what, what's happened in that day that if, you, if you've had a, a tough yeah, day? Yeah, so I, I, I can uh, tell you, for example, yesterday, uh, I went in at the start, we, we do a 7.30 a.m. brief. So I leave the house about quarter past six in the morning. Um, and then uh, once the brief is done, that's when we decide what we're doing during the day. I went off to do an MDT, which is a multidisciplinary team meeting from about eight to about 8.30. Then we start 
operating. Uh, and my first case was a quadruple bypass. Uh, that was done by about 12 o'clock. Had a couple of meetings during lunchtime. Second case was a double valve replacement. Uh, that finished about 5.30, about to go home. Uh, then I was on call last night, got a type A aortic dissection that came in and that finished at two in the morning. So actually when I got home, everyone was asleep, so I didn't have a chance to say hello to anyone. So, uh, so uh, yeah, that, that that's a sort of, I wouldn't say typical day, that's a busy day, but that that's normally what we get up to. And I suppose part of the reason why people might be saying they think that being a surgeon is hard is because the stakes are so high. You know, if I if I make a mistake as a journalist, well, I suppose the worst thing that could happen is that we get sued and the company might lose some money as a result. If you make a mistake, somebody could die, you know, in front of you. Do you do you think about that every time you're doing it, or is that now sort of just baked into what you're what you're doing day to day? Yeah, no, you, you're certainly correct. I mean, there's no margin of error. It's very black and white. Either, either they do really well, which fortunately ninety nine percent of them do. But the the one percent, if you you know, if there is an error, or you know, if the patients aren't that well, then they do die. But you know, you 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 kind of develop a really thick exterior skin, you know. And uh, because I I I I mean, I teach all the, my trainees this that you know, if you become very emotional during an operation, you you're not going to give your your patient the best. So you have to become almost quite cold and quite clinical when you're in that situation. And then you can think clearly, lead the team, and, and make sure that the patient has a good outcome. I suppose uh, finally to ask you if you'd swap what you do to be prime minister. Do you think your job is harder than being prime minister? <laughs> yeah, to be fair, I think Rishi was uh, put in a terrible position, so I've got a lot of sympathy for him. But you know, it's <laughs> what can I say? I, I I think I will struggle to do his job, and he'd probably struggle to do mine. <laughs> if he came, I tell you what, if he came to you and said, "How can I sort out the NHS?" Given that you're right at the front line of yeah. all that right now, what 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 needs to happen in the NHS? Resource, it's just money, you know, purely and simply. If you look at, you know, austerity, you know, the NHS to cope with austerity, but it's really degraded bed services and so forth. And you know, it's got to go back to almost when Blair was throwing money at the NHS to get back to uh, where we are, and that that's all it is, pure and simple. Do you think Gavin Lineker's uh, told me we're here for him in a set, but he, he seems to think that, that politicians should be paid more. If we pay politicians more, we'd get the brightest and best. I don't, I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, no, I, I think that's certainly true. If you look at uh, industry, uh, private industry, you know, uh, they, they pay top dollar and get the top executives and, uh, and things. And I think that's certainly the case. That if you want really good quality MPs and people who don't have second jobs, then you should probably improve their pay. I know that's a bit controversial, but, you know, I think that way you'll get the best people doing the job rather than people always do treating it like a second job. And without um, going through your your pay slip, I mean, a, a, the prime minister gets what about one hundred and sixty thousand. What would a, what would a heart surgeon get? Uh, probably about. It's a rough ballpark. So, so all all uh, consultants in the NHS are basically paid the same. We're all the same. Thank you. Yeah. So it's about hundred k. See, that does seem like. Yeah, if you you literally got people's hearts in your hands, that seems like uh, maybe 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 that you, that should be a bit more. Uh, Covid, it's really good to speak to you. I'm sure you've got another busy day ahead. Really appreciate your time today. Time pleasure. Radio. Nice to speak to you. Uh, so Covinda Lau is one of the country's leading heart surgeons, explaining. I mean, it's quite hard, isn't it, being a heart surgeon? No wonder people think it's harder than being prime minister. So after surgeon in the polling comes nurse. Lots of people think that being a nurse is harder than being uh, prime minister. And then firefighter. So Josephine Reynolds is hailed as Britain's first female firefighter ever. And she agrees it's pretty tough. It's very hard because there's so many things that you don't, the public don't really know about. 
you have to do a million different things. You have to be like a very soft person if you're rescuing a kitten. And then on the other hand, you've got to be as hard as anything as really tough if you're running into a building that's on fire. So, and everything in the middle and the skills you need, the training that's involved. Uh, there are, you know, there's a, I read something earlier that the only prime minister to work as hard as a firefighter, in my opinion, would be like Winston Churchill. He gave a blood, sweat, tears and toll speech. And that is firefighting. And firefighting is this, the road to victory in firefighting. Yeah, in spite of all terror, victory, however long and hard the road may be. So that is firefighting in essence. And everything firefighters do, once they start, they're committed to the project. Look at global warming. Look at the, the you know, it's a nightmare out there. And it's always the firefighters, first responders that get called on first to, you know, when we're stuck, we always call on the firefighter. Yeah. And then there's a million other things that go on as well. <laughs> what what drew you to it, particularly as Hell yeah. is the first female firefighter? You know, previously a very blokey job with yeah. lots of risks. Uh, my yeah. guess is that when you first started out as well, you know, we've been lucky. I think the number of people dying fires these days has gone down because people yeah. mess and all that sort of stuff. But when you were starting out, it was an incredibly blokey, dangerous thing to do. What What drew you to it? I just desperately needed a job. I was 17. It was that two years. I was just stuck. What am I going to... I wanted to have my own flat, my own house, my own door key. Be totally... I'm a very independent person. I hate being anyone telling me what to do. So, like, what can I do to get away from my family? Yeah, so I thought, right. And I looked at any job, and they just happened to have, you know, the advert in the Eastern Evening News, and it was junior firefighters, and I hadn't got a clue what it was. I thought, I'll apply and just see what happens. And that's what happened. So then 15 months later, they turned out a firefighter and then, you know, on it went from there. Yeah, I loved it. Loved it. And, and so tell me about a tough day as a firefighter yeah. that you, a tough, sort of a, a typical yeah. tough day that you remember. A tough day will be when you get, you get up and then you're on the watch and you go out to an accident, for example, and you might be there and it's, you know, they're very serious things. You've got massive lorries crushing a mini with a mum in or something like that and you might be having a little girl on the side of the road and you're trying to trying to make sure that people are calm they feel safe and that you know that they know that they're you're there for them really and that's and the thing is you never know from one minute to the next what will happen next so you're doing that and then you'll get called out to a different thing which could be a chemical fire or it could be a lady back at the station with a ring on her finger that's stuck or animal rescues, or suicides in the woods. So, but yeah, so it's very much the hard ones are very much the ones where you're connecting with people who are struggling, and you know, all you want to do is to get them safe and sound and, you know, out of that instant area. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned getting cats out of trees. How much time does the firefighters spend getting cats out of trees? There's an amount, there's an amount, but there's every kind of animal you can believe. I rescued a monkey at Thetford. We had uh, this zoo, honestly, and the, they'd got, Tropical zoo, I can't remember what it's called now, but in the day, the monkeys got out over the A11 and they're up in the fir trees in the, in town and no one can do anything with them. And in the end, they called the fire brigade and we caught them on the church roof, put the ladder up. My boss is like, Joe, you're a female, you sort it out. And up I went. And anyway, we fed this monkey loads of like grapes and whatever they said us to give her. And then the next day, they like called it after me in the paper. It's like, you know, <laughs> they called it Josephine. <laughs> so you never know. But it goes from that. And a lot of it's quite serious because if the animals are stuck, if they're cows and things are upside down, or, you know, you've got to act really, thought really thoughtfully and try and, you know, 
getting rescued as fast as you can yeah animals are really hard because you can't like talk to them like you can a human say don't worry we're here you can like emphasize and hope they realize what you're up to but you know it's not necessarily the case but there is a small amount of that but it's big and important Uh, (laughs) and finally then would you swap uh being a firefighter for being prime minister do you think that being a firefighter is harder or easier than being prime minister would you like the top job I think firefighting is always much harder. You know, you've got risks that people know about, high cancer risks now. There's so many things that people don't realise that goes into a firefighter's day. And in my opinion, it's a much more difficult but much more rewarding job than any prime minister would ever be, in my my humble opinion. (laughs) So you you wouldn't like the top job? You wouldn't like to be prime minister? Well, I don't know, actually. If I had the energy, I'd love it. Uh, that was Josephine. Held as Britain's first female firefighter. Well, those are the jobs the public think are harder than being PM. And at the very bottom of the list, the job the public think is much easier than being Prime Minister. 80% think it's easier. Professional footballer. So naturally, we spoke to one of the most famous former, former England internationals, now host of Match of the Day, to fact-check it. Gavalinica, is it easy being a professional footballer? Um, no, obviously not. I think I think people have got slightly confused with the job they're perhaps most like to do rather than what is the most what is the easiest. Um, I can understand why they're confused, but the truth is, I suppose compared with any other um, profession in the country, most children, um, probably more than any other job, would like to be footballers. Therefore, the fact that it's so difficult to get to the top in the first place um, suggests that it's certainly not easy. Um, it's also, I think, important to mention that football is completely uh, meritocratic. Um, you know, you, there's, there's no paternal help. It's not a question of who you know rather than what you know. Um, so it's, it's, and it's unbelievably competitive. Thousands and thousands of kids are at football club academies and only a tiny, tiny percentage make it to the top. So that suggests to me it's actually probably one of the most difficult jobs in the world, certainly not the easiest. Maybe they're getting a little bit thinking about the salaries, which is always something that's aimed at football. Doesn't seem to apply to other sports, um, um, but maybe because you know most footballers are working class lads. I don't know. Um, but I, I, yeah, I would argue um, football's case is is certainly um, not easy by any stretch of the imagination. I don't know. What's, when did you first think you wanted to be a professional footballer? And how was it that when you finally got there? Well, it's a slow process. I, I mean, I think I thought about being a footballer be, be just about the time I started to walk, I'd imagine. But um, as soon as I kicked the ball around, so it was always part of my life. That or cricket, to be honest. I, you know, I didn't know. I actually thought I had more chance at cricket than footballers, um, <laughs> um, because cricket's easier than football. There's another one for it. Um, so, um, but um, in the end, football's opportunity came along first, um, and it, it's it's magical. I still doubted myself whether I'd actually you know, make it to the very top. But, um, you know, whatever level I got to, I, I managed to still score a few goals. So, um, you know, for me, I would say it's, it's the easiest job in because that's the job that I was given the gift of of being able to do. Um, but it's still hard. You know, the, you, you trade every day. I know it's not the hours of, of other jobs, but you have to trade really hard. These are very young men. They have to give up a lifestyle in many ways that most teenagers and, and, and young men in their 20s they you know you can't go out partying all the time some some do but they usually they they usually pay for it in their career um 
So it's it's actually you know it's not it's not the wonderfully magnificent life it appears. If you get to the very top, obviously the rewards are astronomical, and and that makes a big difference. But it wasn't like that in my day. It was a kind of gradual process, and um, in the end, I earned um, I'm, I'm decent money. But it's obviously nothing compared um, to what it is now. And in terms, of, I was just looking down through this list of the other jobs they looked at: surgeon, nurse, mm. firefighter, soldier, cleaner, chef, waiter, yeah. ju- journalist. People think being a journalist is quite easy as well. What would you have done if it wasn't footballer? Probably journalism. Um, I was really? always Yeah, I was. Um, I used to write my match reports um, when I used to go and watch Leicester at Filbert Street growing up. Um, so I always thought, and I was always interested in the media. And, oh, obviously, that's where I am in the end. Anyways, kind of journalist yeah. in, in some form, broadcaster. So, yeah, I think I would have probably tried to do that um, because I certainly didn't want to work with my dad on the market. <laughs> Way too hard work. So I think I would have wanted to be a sports journalist, um, whether I'd have managed to or not, I don't know. But I, but the fact that I played and scored a few goals for England certainly helped me get back into journalism after my, after my football career. Uh, and what about uh, Prime Minister then? Because so, so this, this bowl, eight out of ten thing, being a yeah. footballer is easier than being Prime Minister. What do you... Do you think it looks easy being Prime Minister by comparison? Um, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, again, I think I would certainly say being a footballer is preferable to being Prime Minister. <laughs> um, uh, the, there's a distinct difference between what's easier, though. Um, I mean, yes, being a Prime Minister is, is an incredibly difficult job and it's a, it's a job that's impossible to please all the people um, all of the time. Um, so that in, extent, that in itself is obviously ex- extremely difficult. But you get a hell of a big team around you, don't you? You've got a big cabinet, all these people helping you out. Um, you know, somebody looks after culture and sport and somebody else does education and somebody does foreign affairs. I mean, that, oh, you, what do you do? You pitch up once a week at Prime Minister's question for half an hour, an hour. And that's about it, really, isn't it? I mean, I, th- I suspect there's some Prime Ministers would argue there's a bit more to it than that. <laughs> I'm kidding. Would you would you fancy the job? Good you, Lord, no. <laughs> <laughs> just just occasionally dabbling on Twitter in in the political world is enough to put put you off doing that. It's bad enough in football. Um, you know that's incredibly tribal, but um, politics is um, even more tribal. But I, I'm interested in politics. I have been all my life, um, and well, not all my life, but my adult life. And um, but actually going into politics myself is. Never, 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 no, no ambitions. Some people, uh, I mean, clearly, because you are, you particularly on social media, you're, you're quite political. Yeah. Have you ever been asked, have you, have you ever had anyone approach you and say, Gary, have you thought about, we've got a, you know, a little little safe seat here somewhere? Yeah. No, no, I've never had that. I've, I've asked him, obviously, political campaigns on, on yeah. numerous occasions, but um, no, I haven't. <laughs> and, if, and if they did, you, you don't fancy it? No, I'd, I'd have to form a new party. Oh, right. That's called, a good... Yeah, centre-forward party. Centre-forward. It's very yeah, good. There you go. Oh, so you have thought about this. You've got... I bet you've... No, it was actually... You've, you've, got, you've got the logo that, ready to go. It was a friend of mine that tried to push <laughs> me into politics, saying we're going to start a new party. You're going to leave it. And it's going to... It, it, it was in jest, I listened to it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And in terms of um, when you're when you're sort of being critical, I mean, you know, there'd be lots of being critical of recently, whether it's Ben Wishes, <laughs> Sudat, Liz, Charles, Boris Johnson. Is there ever part of you that thinks... Oh, it's a tough job. You know, it's an impossible job. Oh, no, it's a tough job. There's no question about that. And obviously, you know, you've got to manage the budget and things like this, and everybody wants a slice of the pie. It must be incredibly difficult. Um, And they've made it look incredibly difficult over the last (laughs) recent months. 
and what about when you are when you are being political? Because um, you know, we've all got a view on politics because we all yeah. you know we all get to vote. But then people tell you stick to the football, Gary. Yeah, what, you know whether whether it's you talking about politics yeah. in the UK or going to Qatar, or whatever. Yeah, it's invariably you know from a, a plumber or a taxi driver or an insurance broker or someone in the city who tweets about politics all the time. But I think the, the stick to football thing only comes when they disagree with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's an absurd thing. But um, no, I'm unlike anyone else. I'm interested in politics. So if I give my views occasionally, um, and 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 I enjoy politics. I mean, young, I've got podcast business now. We've got the probably the yeah. biggest political podcast in the country, and the rest is politics, which is which is uh, of great joy and and pleasure. We try to get people, you know, agree and disagree agreeably and stuff like that, which I think is something that we. We could all try and do it. It seems to get so tribal and aggressive nowadays yeah. and divisive, which is, which is a great shame. You can enjoy politics without taking umbrage over everything. Do you think we'd get better politicians if they were better paid? If they were paid like footballers are these days? Well, it's, it's a funny one. I mean, you probably never get that through Parliament, but I, I, I've always thought it's such an important job that I've always thought that if we could kind of tempt the really brilliant minds in the country into the roles um, rather than perhaps people that are already self-made or their, you know, their family's fortune or or they're just, you know, not all of them, but obviously some come through the ranks. But I don't think we really, really entice um, the great minds in the country and, and probably a bigger salary would, but I don't think you'd ever get that by, get that through. <laughs> they'd probably vote for it themselves. Well, there's just this weird thing with, you know, as a country, we moan about politicians, they're rubbish, and they're, you know, why are they better? And then we we, we treat them really badly, you know, we, you know, yeah. in terms of the abuse they get online, the sort of the nitpicking, the double standards and all that sort of stuff. It's a wonder that, you know, the, the cost-benefit ratio of the money versus yeah. the miserable time you get. I'd absolutely concur. Um, and, I, and I suppose, you know, politicians affect people's lives all the time. And, and in a way, it's 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 not similar, but it's, it, it's not as... Um, is not as strong in football, but you know footballers get. You know, you have a bad game. You, yeah. you, I, I, you, I wouldn't dare go online if I if, if social media around when when I played. I'd only I'd do what I did when I played, which is like I'm on Monday morning. I get I buy all the newspapers if I'd scored a couple at the weekend, um, and buy none of them at all if I <laughs> had a stinker. Um, and I think I'd do the same with social media. But I think you know, sports people certainly football. Those because the fans care so much about it that they can be very abusive towards their yeah, own, yeah. and and certainly those of other clubs as, as we've seen um, in the same way that perhaps politicians are. Yeah, they they definitely seem to get it in the in the same way. Yeah. Uh, and what about um, your current? Um, how are things at the BBC and your tweeting? Have you been ticked off about that lately? The new chairman seems to be cross about I've it. Been, I think I've been very good, boy. I think oh, that's good. Yes, yeah, from yeah. Thank you. My, my end of year report was, was really okay. <laughs> uh, listen, Gary, it's really good to speak to you. Thank Likewise. you so much for for making the case of professional yes. footballers. And it's a strong case, Matt. That was Gary Lineker talking about how easy or otherwise it is uh, to be a footballer. But what about being a farmer or a chef? Well, luckily we've got two people who know only too well what we're talking about. We've got a chef. Uh, we've got uh, the chef off this morning as well and cookbook author Cloder McKenna has joins us. Hi, Cloder. Good morning. How are you? I'm very good. Nice to have you with us. And he went from being on Emmerdale Farm, I know it's not called Emmerdale Farm anymore, but on Emmerdale Farm to actually now having his own farm, Kelvin Fletcher. Afternoon, Kelvin. Afternoon. How are you? Really good. Really good to have you with us. So uh, let's start with you then, Cloder. 
Because you said, yeah. you're, hang on a minute, hang on, I can see you both on Zoom. When we're talking about who's got the toughest job, Claude is sitting in the sunshine, looks like she's <laughs> on holiday. Kelvin's got his dungarees on, he's in the shed, he's working hard. So uh, let's start with Claude then, because she's relaxing nicely. Claude, tell us <laughs> uh, your hardest job being a mm. chef. How hard is it being a chef? Well, I started off training as a chef 22 years ago, when I, or 24 years ago, when I was 23 years old. The days would start at about seven in the morning and finish at one at night um, or one in the morning. You'd get home, get into bed, get up again, work six, sometimes seven days a week. And the hardest thing is, I mean, there's so many difficult things about hard things about it. One is that you can't miss a day. It's not like you can call in sick and the head chef runs out to the table and say, so sorry, your sauce is not coming at your fish today because the chef is sick. Um, the endurance there, you've got to really learn to work fast, to have a great work ethic very, 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 very quickly because everything is so timed. So when you get in the morning, your prep has to be done at a certain point so then you can go on to actually make all of this food for like 120 people or, you know, whatever yeah, it is, yeah. the packs of the restaurant that night. And then everything is timed. It has to be finished, ready for tasting at six o'clock so that when the guests come in, everything rolls. And then there's the clean down afterwards. There's the you know there's the pressure and the stress of a kitchen where nobody is really talking to each other except for <laughs> yes chef no chef let's go chef this chef and then I went on to have my own I had three restaurants in Dublin wow um where I had huge teams of chefs that were working underneath me and it was it, it not there was nothing else in my life for that whole period of time I mean, now it's different. I'm working on television and I'm writing cookery books. But and you're sitting for in the sunshine. 15 years. <laughs> yeah. Without any guilt. Without any guilt. No, quite right. You've done I your hard so yards. And <laughs> when I think about it, Shep, you know, you've always got like the Gordon Ramsay thing, but I don't know if you've seen The Bear. The, um, is it on yes. Disney series? It's just so stressful. So There's just so much shouting and throwing of things and yeah. people cutting. The is it really like that? It is really like that. It is. I mean, every kitchen is quite different to how they have, you know, their, their ethics and everything in a kitchen. And it's not, you know, when, when I was training, it was definitely very, very, very stressful because there is no option. There is no option to, oh, we'll finish this tomorrow. Everything has to be done and finished at a certain time. And every chef out there that works in a restaurant knows that you're only as good as your last meal. So every restaurant... And every chef is judged on their last dish that they put up. So the next day is a brand new day. You're not working on what you did yesterday. You're working on what you've got to do today. And there yeah. is no option to be lax on any day. You just <laughs> put can't. It off. You can't like have a day off and say, oh, I'm just having a day off today. Or I'm, I've got to work slower today. Or I'm you know, going to be on the phone for you know, an hour to catch up with some people. There is just no time for yeah. that. And you've also got to get on with people. So that you really rely in a kitchen on a team. And even if you don't like the person that you're working beside, you have to get on with them <laughs> and you've got to work hard at them. Well, particularly you know? if they're starting there with a big knife. Well, I'll tell you what, let's talk about uh, not getting a day off. You can't put anything off, long hours. This is being a farmer as well, isn't it, Kelvin? Well, I mean, I've, I've always heard that chefs, and uh, there's a high pressure just from watching Gordon Ramsay in the kitchen. Of, <laughs> I can only imagine how, how tough it is to work in a kitchen. But I think I want to change my profession. I think just being a parent, certainly a parent of four children, is, is, is the hardest job in the world. Uh, it's coupled that with, with being a, a farmer as well and, 
somewhat as an actor. Yes, I guess I'm a part-time farmer, but what I've come to understand very quickly, me and my wife, is that there's no such thing as a part-time farmer. You know, whether it's our hundred sheep or, or our pigs or, or the, you know, the 12 horses we've got, ultimately, uh, even us taking this on as, 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 as amongst other things, as a, as a acting, acting careers, it's, uh, it never stops. Every single day is a different day. You don't know what to expect. There's an element of, you know, it's so unpredictable, very much like acting, I guess. You never know what the market is doing. So therefore, you, you've got this livestock that you've, you've kind of bred. Oh, oh, yeah, you don't know what price you're going to get to it. So it, it's pretty uneasy, but and it's at times it's very stressful and at times it's very lonely as well. You know, unfortunately, and that's a, big a lot thing. of farmers. Yeah, there's a big thing in farming, isn't it? You know, loneliness and, and unfortunately suicide and, and actually just working alone. You know, there's accidents and that sort of stuff as well. Yeah, that's that's it. And a lot of the time you are on your own. And, uh, you know, that, those, that I'm, I'm out here today on my own where Liz is, is inside with the kids and, um, you know, um, from, in, from in the house there with all the children. So we try and share it as much as we can. But when we're out here together, it's a much easier job. But, yeah, it can get a little bit lonely when, when, you're, on the, when you're on your own. But it's not all negative. I have to say, you know, <laughs> it's grey, it's miserable, it's cold. But I can't speak for everyone, but since doing this this farming, this new way of life for us, I can't think of anything else I'd want to do. It's absolutely life-changing and, and it's hard work. It's relentless. You never get a day off. There's a lot of responsibility with animals. You know, you've a lot of um, a, a lot of things count on you and there's a lot of pressure on your shoulders, but I wouldn't change it and I absolutely love it and it's, it's changed our lives. Just finally then to both of you, because we've been asking this question, you know, what jobs are easier or harder than being Prime Minister? Would either of you want to swap what you do to be Prime Minister? Do you think your job is harder or easier? Uh, you first of all, Clodagh. Um, I mean, I, I know the answer is no, I wouldn't like to swap <laughs> my job for being the Prime Minister. I mean, you know, just to iterate what you've been saying as well, it, 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 there is so much feedback in it. I mean, the reason why I fell in love with chefing is I, I remember the point. I remember exactly the day. I remember having a piece of local fish and putting it up on the plate. And I'd been sent out to forage in the woods that was right beside the restaurant to gather wild garlic. And I made a wild garlic butter. And I was about 26 at the time. And that was my first main course plate I was putting up. And the wild garlic butter was melting over the fish. And then I ran and got the leaf. And I stuck the leaf and a bit of lemon that kind of swooped over like an umbrella over the fish. And I remember putting it up and the feeling that ran through my body of creating this beautiful place and knowing that it was going to create a moment for somebody out in the restaurant. It, I was addicted. And, and that was, that's what drives then. I mean, you yeah, just yeah, yeah. get this feeling of creating and making somebody feel good and happy and giving them a moment. And also that the fisherman is happy and that connection with the producers and farmers and yeah, yeah, farmers yeah. like that we all rely on. I mean, we we can't live without farmers. Well, I tell you um, what, I tell you about, gives you the hook. So you, it gets you through those hard working hours. And prime ministers, I think they just get such a hard time all the time. I mean, I just don't, they don't get that where same. They, get they, don't, that. they don't get to put a smile on someone's face. Same. You've made you definitely made me hungry. What about you, Kelvin? Would you swap what you're doing? I mean, to go from acting and the Strictly dance floor to being a farmer, would you swap what you're doing now to being Prime Minister? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I think I'd do a better job. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it is, I guess it's a very demanding job and, and, and you, there's a lot of critique, but um, I wouldn't swap it uh, for the world, no. It's, uh, I think what we do as a family is, uh, is be together and uh, we try and spend every single day uh, as some sort of adventure. And this is what farming represents. I guess acting represents that as well, but it's the unknown. 
yeah. and it's something that we've learned to embrace really and uh, so no I, I definitely I think for me at the minute um, being a prime minister is, is not on my radar <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm give it stick, time Calvin stick to what I think I'm good at <laughs> yeah give it time give it time listen it's been lovely to speak to you both uh, thank you for sharing uh, and being so enthusiastic about what you do that's what's been so lovely uh, Claudia McKenna uh, for the chef of this morning lots of cookbooks as well you, you know, go online and have a look she's got a new book out Shop, a new shop. A new shop. New shop, lovely. Clodagh. Uh, so Clodagh's like got... Calvin, I also have a farm, so I've opened up a small farm shop. Everybody's um, getting into farming. With lovely. All of our lovely. Oh, excellent. Lovely. I'll have to come over and have a look. Yes. Oh, I love it. Farming, farming speed dating or something's going on here. Uh, Kelvin, best of luck with it all. Uh, and you can watch Kelvin's big farming adventures on BBC iPlayer uh, right now as he dips his toe into the, the world of farming. Well, that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, can you get to number 10? Email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio, and we'll get you on very soon. <laughs>